Welcome to the Modern Mexico Podcast. I'm your host, Nathaniel Parrish. On today's episode of the podcast, we're talking about Mexico's gastronomy and looking at the impact of Lalo Garcia, the chef who runs Maximo Bistro, one of Mexico's most highly acclaimed new restaurants. In the 1990s and early 2000s, Mexico City was known for smog, sprawl, and street crime, and was not usually near the top of the list of cities that most international tourists wanted to visit. But over the last 10 to 15 years, local government officials and private sector entrepreneurs have worked to spark a new wave of urban renewal and really transform the way Mexico City is seen around the world. In 2016, the New York Times listed Mexico City as its number one recommended destination to visit. While urban planners, architects, and police have all played big roles in Mexico City's evolution, a new group of globally renowned chefs has also helped catalyze Mexico City's transformation and also helped burnish Mexico's soft power credentials by elevating Mexico's gastronomy to be more universally regarded as one of the most complex and tasty cuisines on the planet. On today's episode of the podcast, we're speaking to Laura Tillman, the author of a new book called The Migrant Chef, The Life and Times of Lalo Garcia. Hi, Laura. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks so much for having me. So I wanted to start off the discussion by asking, why did you think the time was right for a deep dive book on a chef in Mexico City? So I think when I first moved to Mexico City, which was at the end of 2014 and started going to restaurants here, it was immediately apparent that the food scene here was really exciting And also that it was this kind of cultural diplomacy where Mexico was telling stories about its food culture that also were opening up these broader conversations about any number of issues, inequality, the livelihoods of urban and rural workers, the well-being of the country's environment. And I think that diners anywhere Mexico or in the U.S. or in Europe who are going to some of these top restaurants in the world have probably started to notice that, you know, the experience of going to one of these restaurants isn't just about the food. It's also about kind of the storytelling behind the food. So I think I recognize that by talking about food and also talking about the space of a restaurant itself, there was an opportunity there to tell stories about all, all of the different things that are happening in Mexico today. I think in a restaurant, you also see these kind of competing, at times contradictory narratives about how the country is seen from abroad. You know, is it a country full of violence and poverty, inequality and environmental destruction? Or is it a beautiful, fun place to visit with its rich history, beauty and cultural wealth? The answer is closer to all of the above, but I think in the past decade, I've seen how these different narratives about Mexican food have been articulated in more nuanced ways to the world. 
And it seemed like this chance to, in telling a story about Lalo specifically, to kind of dive into all of those different facets of the meaning of food in Mexico today. I think in your book, you do a really great job of describing how Mexico City has evolved over the last 10 years. And especially in neighborhoods such as Colonia Roma and Condesa, we've seen this new group of restaurants that has played a big role in the transformation. A few months ago, I wrote an article for Monaco magazine, and I talked to Elena Regalas and Edo Nakatani, two chefs who run restaurants in Colonia Roma. And they both talked about how they've seen the neighborhood grow and develop over the years since they opened their restaurants. And Maximo, of course, is located right in the middle of Colonia Roma. And it's definitely one of the main restaurants that's helped develop momentum for this new wave that's helped transform and redefine Mexico's cuisine. And I think that Lalo Garcia has definitely been recognized as one of the main chefs that's played a big role in this movement. And I wanted to ask if you could sum up his character or describe him in in three words. Yeah, this is such a hard question because he's such a multifaceted person. And of course, I spent so much time with him reporting this story. So to boil it down to three words is hard. But the three that I think come to mind for me are driven, artist, and skeptic. When I started reporting this book, I've been reporting on immigration for a long time. And I wanted to write, in a sense, about the immigrant experience through the lens of a restaurant and restaurant workers. But I I was also kind of in a place in my career and also just as a consumer of news and media where I was getting a little bit frustrated with the way that we often tell stories about immigrants. They're often stories that take place at kind of a critical moment, whether it's a border crossing or a deportation, and we don't really get to see the broader picture of who that person is beyond just this crisis that they find themselves in. So in in writing about Lalo, who does have this experience of crisscrossing the border and being deported back to Mexico from the U.S., I, I was interested in, in telling that story more through the lens of just who is this person and what is their life journey. And I think a big piece of his life journey is that he is an artist. I mean, he's one of the top chefs in the world. And I think that when you get to that level, the food that you're making kind of transcends what you feed people to satisfy their hunger. It, it's food that is incredibly beautiful that has a lot of influences that are incorporated into it, a lot of inspiration, and there's an incredible amount of craftsmanship and technique that goes into creating that food. So I I do think of him as an artist, and I think of this as being kind of an artist's journey that's told through the book. Driven because, you know, to spend time with Lalo is to be very humbled by his drive, uh, the amount of passion and work ethic that he brings to what he does. So watching what he accomplishes in a week or a month is really incredible and it's hard to imagine just just doing as much as he does. And then I think skeptic because part of what made him so compelling to me 
as just a person getting to know him and as a writer also was the way he brings that skepticism or kind of critical eye to his work, to the world around him. He is constantly being pitched things by vendors, by purveyors, by people that he meets. And I think that he brings this kind of strain of critical distance. Having been the person who was the dishwasher, having been the person that as a migrant farm worker picked the tomatoes or dug the onions, that he's not so easily kind of seduced by this world of glamour um, in restaurants, that he's always kind of uh, bringing that critical eye and critical distance to to what he does and trying to strive for something better. Driven, artist, and skeptic. Uh, I think those words match up pretty well with the character you describe in your book. And I wanted to say, I really enjoyed the chapters of your book that focus on Lalo's formative years in the U.S. And... In the book, you write about Lalo being exposed to and starting to absorb recipes and techniques from French and Italian cuisine while working at restaurants in the U.S. And when he came back to Mexico, he also started to explore regional specialties from Mexico's Pacific coast and other distinct subregions of Mexico's gastronomy. And I'm wondering if you can explain how his repertoire evolved after returning to Mexico. Yeah, so a lot of that influence, I think, first came in his childhood from his mother and his grandparents. He grew up in the state of Guanajuato um, at a very young age and then moved to the Estado de Mexico before coming to the U.S. And so he was, you know, eating the, the food from his village. He was eating tamales de ceniza, he was eating moronga, which is a kind of blood sausage, he was eating uh, mole, he was eating carnitas, all of these foods that his mother and his grandparents and aunts and uncles would prepare. And then I think when he came back to Mexico, there was this chance, especially because he was working at Pujol, this very top restaurant in Mexico at the time, that was really a path-breaking institution in terms of kind of taking something like a taco and elevating it and seeking to find the way that you could make something not only that captured the deliciousness of eating that taco on the street, but also with the absolute best quality ingredients, with creativity, trying new things. So I think that through through Pujol, he also learned a lot. And then he definitely traveled to Oaxaca, trying different kinds of mold. And then he spent a lot of time in Baja California and the incredible seafood that they have there and coastal cuisine. So I think he's brought all of those different influences into his restaurant, along with his travels to France and Italy and to Japan, where he's continued to gather other flavors. And so when you go to Maximo today, you will really see all of those influences on the menu from... Baja California to Tokyo to the U.S. South, where he was growing up on his menu. I also wanted to ask if we can talk about the role that Maximo plays in modern Mexico. One of the things you talk about is 
this idea that it's a relatively recent development that exclusive fine dining restaurants in Mexico City that cater to wealthy locals and visitors are embracing traditional Mexican street food recipes. And can you explain a little bit more about this social context? Yeah, so I think that was one of the really fascinating things to me, having moved here in 2014, was try to sort of backtrack and look at not only what happened before I got here, but also what happened before Lalo got here, before he was deported and ended up in Mexico City. And so a lot of people talk about the role that Enrique Olvera played at Pujol. You also talked about the role of Ricardo Zurita at Azul Historico. And I think that there are also these interesting figures of Monica Patino and a kind of cohort of women chefs who were up and coming in the mid 90s and were opening these restaurants that were kind of, if not for the absolute first time, uh, kind of bringing this new movement to the forefront of fine dining in Mexico City, which was to combine, say, Italian cuisine and Mexican cuisine, or kind of pan-Asian cuisine and Mexican cuisine in these white tablecloth restaurants, take a little bit more care with their sourcing also of ingredients, and really kind of make the statement that wheat la coche, a, a kind of humble food that is the basically the the kind of fungal growth on corn, sometimes called Mexican truffles, sometimes called corn smut, that you could use that and use that as a filling for ravioli, for example, or making a voulevant. Monica Patino talks about how in her household growing up, which was a mix of Mexican and European ancestry, that they would make a voulevant, which is like a, a pastry shaped like a bowl. And instead of filling it with French ingredients, they would fill it with rajas and crema, poblano peppers. And so I think that there was there was always this strain in Mexican life for centuries of people combining maybe these flavors in their own homes or that in some wealthy households, they might've had a chef that would say, okay, the senora likes her fresh pasta and I'm gonna learn to make that, but I'm also going to use this chile de arbol in the sauce that I'm familiar with. And then you see a restaurant like Rosetta today that has that very dish, you know, tagliatelle with Italian sausage and chile de arbol on the menu. But at the time, I think in the 90s, it was kind of this revolutionary move to to do that. And it was kind of pushing back on these centuries of colonial influence that said that even though we're in Mexico and even though we're sitting on the former city of Tenochtitlan, that French and Italian and Spanish and to some extent Japanese cuisine was for high-end dining and that Mexican cuisine was kind of a more humble everyday food that yes you would eat in a you know at a street stand or yes you'd eat at a little restaurant and yes you would eat at home even for the upper class but you didn't go out and have a celebratory birthday meal with your upper class family over mole. So I think that, that that was super interesting to try to map how that evolution happened and how that kind of set the stage for Enrique Olvera and then for Lalo 
where Lalo's food is such a combination of mostly French and Mexican cuisine, but that the public was, in a sense, prepared to get on board with that right away by the time that he arrived, which was over a decade after a chef like Monica Patino was opening her restaurant for the first time. I recently ate at a upscale restaurant that had a woman preparing huaraches at a station in the center of the dining area. And that was an effort to combine gourmet cuisine and, and street food. And when it comes to fine dining, I definitely think there's something big at play in Mexico. And I think in a very big way, Lalo is part of this group of chefs who have helped to promote Mexico's soft power around the globe and project this confidence that Mexico's gastronomy should absolutely be placed alongside Italian, French, Chinese, and Indian as one of the most diverse and delicious cuisines in the world. But I think it's also important to take a look at the economics driving this trend in Mexico City. Right now, the minimum salary in Mexico City is 141.7 pesos a day, or just over $3,000 per year. And one recent report shows that in Mexico City, around 2.5 million people earn less than 6,042 US dollars per year. And that's about six out of every 10 workers or 59% of the workforce. And Mexico City's upper segment of income, by contrast, a group of over 50,000 people earn salaries that top 30,000 US dollars per year. So on the one hand, 50,000 people is a pretty significant pool of local customers who might visit upscale restaurants a few times a year. But on the other hand, 50,000 people isn't enough to fill up the seats at the soccer stadium at Mexico City's Unam Campus, where the Pumas play. So to put that in perspective, in 2022, over 4 million foreign tourists, most of whom come from the U.S., flew into the Mexico City airport. And anecdotally, it seems like high-end restaurants like Maximo really rely heavily on tourists to support their operations. And I know that a few days ago when I ate at Maximo, it seemed like most tables were filled with English-speaking guests. So my big takeaway from the experience was just seeing this restaurant that was filled with locally hired chefs and waiters who were catering to a mostly international clientele. So I think in some ways it might be true to describe Maximo as part of modern Mexico's successful export-focused economy. But maybe that's uh, enough discussion of the economy of Maximo and we can get back to talking about the gastronomy. And I'm wondering... What's your favorite dish that you've seen Lalo prepare? One that comes to mind that I recently watched him make was one of his classic dishes that he developed when he was the chef de cuisine at Pujol, which is baby corn elote with hollandaise sauce and a chicatana ant chili dust. 
So we went out to Xochimilco, which is one of his favorite spots in Mexico City. It's this area to the south that's still uh, made up mostly of waterways and man-made islands that are, some of them are still being used to grow food for, for residents of Mexico City. A lot of the food on Lalo's menu comes from those farms. So we went out to these farms and he decided to make this elote with hollandaise sauce, which for most people, I think making your own hollandaise sauce in your traditional kitchen with your good stove with an even flame is already a challenge, but he he did it over this open fire. And then the result, which is basically these baby corn that are dipped in the hollandaise and then Parmesan cheese grated over the top with a little bit of this chili dust was so rich and creamy and these waves of flavor kind of kept coming as you ate it from this sweet tender corn to the caramel notes in the brown butter that was in the hollandaise sauce to the deep richness of the Parmesan cheese. And none of these ingredients were especially expensive, which I think is always interesting there's there's this line um from an early review of maximo bistro by the food writer alonso ruvalcalba who basically talks about how you know one of the dishes on maximo's menu was incredibly luxurious and i think it was sweetbreads but i think i had the same sensation when i was eating this corn which is you know none of the ingredients are incredibly luxurious in terms of the ingredients we normally associate with luxury like caviar or truffles or champagne is really just butter corn cheese egg but the result was so luxurious to eat and i think that's the other thing that always feels very central in lalo's food to me is as much as you're going to this high-end restaurant and there is kind of a an element of presentation to the food and the food is food is beautifully plated that he always leads with just what he thinks is the most delicious and so this was just a very very delicious bite so when i recently ate at maximo i got the chance to try that elote dish that you mentioned but Overall, I think two of my favorite items on the menu were a really fantastic liver parfait and an absolutely amazing piece of fried chicken. And those are two things that I was maybe surprised to see on the menu, but it speaks to just how eclectic the menu is. And I've checked out the daily menu a few times since I ate there and I always see dishes that I like to try ranging from a, a raw seafood aguachile to a wagyu beef tongue that's served with a mole sauce and beans and I think on any given day you might see something like a gourmet cheeseburger and handmade pastas that are served with locally sourced seafood as well as interpretations of traditional Mexican dishes and I think that people who read your book might develop a new appreciation for Maximo and I think something that's very clear is that it's definitely a restaurant that reflects the unique history and vision of its founder and overall I just want to say again how much I enjoyed reading your book and I also want to say 
thanks so much for joining us on the Modern Mexico podcast. Thank you. This was a pleasure. I wanted to take a short break to remind listeners that the Modern Mexico podcast is sponsored by Bara Funky Coffee. Bara Funky Coffee is available at the Bara Funky Cafe in Mexico City and is also available to be purchased online and shipped to the U.S. and other countries. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Modern Mexico podcast. If you like what you heard in the podcast today, check out my book, Searching for Modern Mexico, which is available on Amazon. The next episode of the podcast is coming soon. Until then, hasta luego, amigos.